Good morning to you. It's uh, good to be together. We uh, have an opportunity now to turn to God's Word and continue our series in uh, Luke chapter 12. We've been studying uh, throughout the course of this summer, and we continue this morning in verses 49 to 53. And we'll read that in a moment. Before I do so, let me play. Please pray with me. Father, we ask... Uh, As we turn to your word, as we continue in worship, that uh, you would illumine our minds, that you would stir our hearts, uh, that we might know you, that we might love you more, that we might believe in you, that we might live according to your great purposes for us in Christ. Amen. Well, if you will, we're going to turn to uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 49 to 53. If I can invite you to stand as we read God's Word. This is uh, Jesus speaking. I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. This is God's word. Please be seated. He was uh, one of the most prolific writers of the 20th century. He had uh, authored uh, close to 100 books, had contributed to some 200 others, wrote hundreds of poems, including uh, the epic uh, Ballad of the White Horse. He wrote five plays, five novels, more than 4,000 newspaper essays and some 200 short stories. Perhaps some of the most famous were the stories of a priest detective by the name of Father Brown. His name is Gilbert Keith Chesterton. In his book, Orthodoxy, which is part autobiography and part defense of the Christian faith, He makes an insightful observation regarding the necessity of knowing and believing the truth. He says this, What we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition, where it belongs, and settled upon the organ of conviction, where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. We are on the road to producing a race of men too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. This is Chesterton's observation. And it is a prophetic observation, a prophetic concern, a concern for the ages. In fact, his concern has come to fruition in some circles, particularly where truth is 
called into question at every turn. Chesterton, concerned about knowing the truth, believing the truth, undoubting the truth, to use his language. It was his concern for modern humanity. And it is a right concern. And I think it is the same concern that Jesus has for the disciples in this passage as he prepares to send them out into the world. A concern for truth, for understanding kingdom truth, that they would grasp it, that they would get it such that they would know what it is to know him and to live for him as they go about kingdom work, as they live as disciples. It is is the same truth that we need to grasp and understand if we are to believe and live as disciples of the King. Throughout Luke's gospel, a particular emphasis has been placed on the kingdom of God. He tells us that Jesus went through the cities and villages proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And and when he sends out the twelve, he sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And then upon their return, he gathers with them and crowds gather around and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And so we're not surprised here in chapter 12 to see that Jesus has already exhorted these disciples to seek the kingdom of God and that God the Father will be pleased to give it to you. It's that kingdom emphasis. And this section, chapter 12, doesn't actually end at the end of chapter 12. It goes just a little further into chapter 13 and ends with a therefore. Verse 18 says, he said therefore. That is, why was he saying all this in chapter 12? Why have we been spending all this time on this one particular chapter? And Jesus tells us why it is important. He said, therefore, and then he begins to tell two parables, very briefly. He tells a parable of the mustard seed, how from one small, tiny seed, as it was sown, it would burst forth and produce a tree that was verdant and vibrant and strong, and it would provide protection and safety for those who come under it. And then he tells a story, the parable about, about yeast, about leaven, in a, in a large measure of flour that, that was hidden away and it began to work its way out throughout the flour and it transformed the flour and what it produced was, was nourishing and sustaining and giving strength. That's the point of the kingdom, that from one small thing comes something vibrant and grand and glorious that spreads across the land. That's the point that Jesus is making and why he's going to great length as he engages these disciples to help them understand the kingdom. That they would understand kingdom truth and not doubt it but believe it. That they would understand kingdom life. That they would know how to live. And I think the truth that surfaces in this passage so clearly is that this kingdom life comes at great cost and it calls for great commitment. That's, that's what Jesus is trying to get across. This kingdom life. To know him as king. To follow him. To believe. And to live for him then. Is going to come at great cost. And require 
great commitment. So as we, as we work through this passage, as we think through it, I, I kind of envision Jesus trying to answer the questions of the disciples. They seem to be asking implicitly, not explicitly, but he is giving answers to their concerns, to their questions, and particularly three questions. The first is simply this. As, as, he, as he sits with them, they're asking, Jesus, what are you doing here? Why did you come? Why are you here? What's your purpose? They're trying to figure it out. And so Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. And they say, oh, great, perfect. Now we understand. That's not what they say. But what we begin to see here is that Jesus gives us a glimpse even to his own heart and mind, to his own thoughts, the things that were set in front of him, that preoccupied him, that consumed him, if you will, that were important to him. Here we're told the very thing that he longed for, that he would accomplish. And in a few moments, we're going to see the very thing that created anguish and agony for him. It's, it, is, it is a very real side of the humanity of Christ that is perfectly coupled with his divinity. So we begin to see what is before him, what he longed for. And what he longed for is a fire, to cast fire on the earth. And, and now fire could be taken a couple of different ways. Often fire is used to speak of God's judgment. That our God is a consuming fire. And there are many who think that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here in this passage. And they would point to the previous passage that Tommy worked through so beautifully last week about the unexpected coming of Christ in Judgment Day. And they would say that's the topic and so that's what he's talking about here. But i I don't think that's actually what Jesus is talking about. I don't think he's talking about his future coming that will bring judgment and justice and equity upon all the earth. I think what he's talking about here is actually using fire in a positive way. Fire is also used to communicate the presence of God, the power of God. Like the pillar of fire in Exodus that accompanied God's people through the wilderness. Or the tongues of fire that rested upon the disciples as the Holy Spirit was given them in Pentecost. That's positive, uh, the presence of God, the power of God communicated through the metaphor of fire. And I think that's what Jesus has in mind here. In fact, earlier in, in Luke, it says that that Jesus came to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So how do we understand that? Well, I think the key is that he has shifted from a future judgment, a future tense that was really dominant through the previous passage, now to a present tense. He's talking about a present time, verse 56. He's talking about why he came, his first coming. And that's different from his second coming. And his first coming means that he came to bring redemption, to bring salvation, to bring rescue and healing. And this is often how Jesus speaks. Even 
even in Luke chapter 3 where it says he will come to gather the wheat. That's that redeeming, saving work. Afterwards it says, but the chaff will be consumed by fire. Well, that's the future work that will one day come. But for the time being, he's explaining to the disciples why he came in terms of his saving work. It says in Luke that Jesus says, I was sent to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. That good news is a, is a rescue story, a redemption story. He says elsewhere, I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came to bear witness to the truth. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. That's, that's why Jesus came. That's what he's talking about here as he sets that in front of these disciples, that they would understand and grasp really why he's here. And so the fire that he wants to throw upon the earth, that he wants to cast upon the earth, is the very kingdom of God. That it would spark and be ignited and spread like wildfire amidst a dry forest. That's why Jesus is here. That's the the question he's seeking to answer for these disciples. That they would understand the one true living God is a God who saves. A God who rescues the broken and the fallen. And a God who restores and heals. And it says of Jesus, would that it were already kindled. That is, that's what he desires, what he longs for more than anything. That he would be able to baptize them with the Holy Spirit and fire such that his kingdom would spread. And that they would know the presence of the Spirit. That they would understand what it is to be adopted into the family of God as sons and daughters of the living God and be made alive by God's Spirit dwelling in them that they that they might know him as a counselor and a comforter. That they would live by the power of the Spirit. That's what he longed for. That they would no longer be alone, but assured of his presence as they went forth into a hostile world. That they would know that they are sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit as a down payment ensuring their place in God's eternal kingdom. That's what Jesus longed for. That kingdom of God, the work of the Spirit amongst his people, coupled with the advance of the gospel. John Calvin helps us here when he talks about the fire being a metaphor used to communicate the gospel violently, powerfully changing the face of things. That's right. And that's precisely what happens when Christ accomplishes his work. It's the gospel and the spirit at work spreading amidst his people across the globe for his purposes. Friends, whenever you come kind of face to face with Christ, he's asking these questions of you. The same questions he asked Peter. Who do you say I am? Why do you think I came? Those are, those are the most important questions you can answer. Who do you say I am? Who do you believe me to be? 
And here he wants the disciples to see that clearly, to grasp that, to understand that he is truly king, king of kings, and he's come to inaugurate his kingdom. And he's come to show them what it is to live for him as their king. That's why he came. So the disciples, at least implicitly, seem to have another question. All right, Jesus, we get it. We know why you came to bring your kingdom on this earth. How are you going to do that? What's going to start that? How's that? Are you going to overthrow the current authority and power so that you reign and rule and we'll rule right beside you? How are you going to start this kingdom? Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. And they say, okay, um, what do you mean? You mean baptism. Why are you talking about baptism? We're talking about your kingdom, right? You're going to reign. You're going to be king. You're going to be in power and authority, right? That's not what Jesus says. Jesus is talking here about his very own death. He's talking about his death on a bloody cross at Calvary at the hands of sinful men. Baptism means being overwhelmed, being flooded over with, being immersed in. And for Jesus, that baptism specifically here literally means his suffering and his death. That he came for that purpose, to die and to suffer. That he was born for that purpose. And he pursued that purpose. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. That's how the scriptures speak of it. And in so doing, he would suffer unimaginable indignities, being mocked, smitten, beaten, spat upon, despised and rejected and hung on a cross by nails driven through his hands and his feet. That was the reality of what he would experience, and he knew what was coming. And yet I don't think it's that physical suffering that he has in mind here when he talks about how it created distress for him. This is, this is the Savior, the very Son of God, in anguish, in agony. And I think the agony is because he understood what was to happen on that cross which was he would bear our sin. He would take the punishment we deserved. The very wrath of God would be poured out upon him and it would separate him from his Father in heaven until it was accomplished. And that brought him agony and anguish. Isaiah says, upon him was laid the chastisement that brought us peace, real peace, deep peace, peace with a holy, righteous, perfect God, even though we are sinners, came through Christ and his perfect sacrifice on the cross. On him, the Lord laid the iniquity of us all. It was no accident. It it wasn't just uh, some malicious, murderous men somehow accomplishing their purpose. Though it was that, It was not by accident. It was under God's sovereign hand and appointed 
time. And this caused agony, anguish, distress, sunekomai, to be under attack, to be besieged like a city surrounded by an army as it is about to be crushed. That's the experience for Jesus right here. Feeling that, that weight and that pressure in a very real way. See, Luke tells us earlier in chapter 9 that Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. He had the cross in mind. He knew he was headed to Calvary and he pursued that path and he, he pursued it all the way till his final breath. That's what he has in mind here. One paraphrase has it this way, how I am totally governed by this until it be finally accomplished. I'm totally governed by it until it is finally accomplished. And when it is accomplished, when it is finished, his death on the cross, it will ignite a great fire like which the world has never seen. That's what Jesus is saying. And that's how his kingdom would come and how it would begin to spread by the power of God and the gospel of Christ. And so 2,000 years later, we are witness to that fire ablaze even in this place. The very fruit of the gospel and the work of the Spirit because of what Christ accomplished on the cross and when he was raised again, conquered sin and death forever, we see the fruit of that even here, even now, as that fire continues to burn and blaze. Friends, that's the cost And there's only one who could pay the price. His name is Christ Jesus. So kingdom life comes at an incredible cost. And it calls for an incredible commitment. Commitment to Christ and to the things of Christ that our hearts and our loves and our loyalties would be set upon him above everything else. And that's where he begins to explain and answer this third question that the disciples seem to be asking. All right, Jesus, we understand why you came and how that would happen now, or at least in part we understand it. What does that mean for me? What's that going to look like in my life? What are going to be the kind of the consequences of all this if I follow you as we go forth as your disciples? What's that going to mean? And here he says, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you. Rather, division. And he then begins to show that division in the most intimate of human bonds in the family. Division in the family. You think I came to bring peace? No. Division. Well, wait a minute, Jesus. You're the prince of peace. You're... you're, you, you come with a message of peace. You come to establish peace with a living God. What do you mean you come to bring division? It, when you were born, the angel said, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is well pleased. How, what do you mean division? You come preaching the good news of peace. How can that be? 
That's what the, the disciples were trying to wrestle with and understand. It didn't cohere for them. It didn't connect. They were starting to experience the division and the discord that he has in mind. And, and they were beginning to see rejection from what it is to follow him. And, and all of a sudden they're realizing this is going to have some huge implications for my family. And he's saying, you're right, it's going to, there's going to be division between father and son at times, mother and daughter. Friends, that, that is a, a serious matter as believers to know the implications of believing this truth and what it looks like. And I know it is for some of you, you're very... Uh, experience on this day that you've begun to experience because of your faith in Christ some distance in your extended family or maybe your immediate family some some division some discord and and it's creating consternation and you're wondering Jesus wh- how could this be why wh- why would you allow this even I'll say this, that the truth of Christ, to believe that, is always going to cause some discord in our culture. It's going to create conflict because it is, a, it is an exclusive truth claim. It is, it is looking to the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's an exclusive claim. When you affirm that and believe that, there are going to be people who disagree. There's going to be opposition. And there's going to be conflict. Truth always confronts the lies of the adversary. The lies that say, you know what? He wasn't really God. Well, his his death on a cross, it was unfortunate, but it didn't do anything. Those lies... Christianity comes right up against those and Jesus confronts those straight away as he shows the disciples who he is and why he came. And there will always be some in our midst who oppose the truth of the gospel and oppose it at times vigorously. We've seen this in our day, in our age with the rise of a new atheism that is that is aggressive in its advance against Christian truth claims, against what Christ is saying right here. And some of you have experienced that in your very own families. It's not always the case, but it sometimes is the case. Imagine, if you will, a young couple comes from the coast, maybe from California or Connecticut, and they find their way to Chicago and relocate and and they move into their idyllic little neighborhood right next to you. And you bring them um, a peach cobbler. And, uh, and you get to know them. And you're delighted to get to know them. And Likewise, they with you. And, and over time, you get to hear their story and how they uh, really didn't grow up in the church, don't come from believing families and and uh, really don't know anything about, about Jesus and the gospel, and you begin to tell them about the gospel, about who Jesus is and why he came. And, and to your wonder and amazement, they believe. And they turn 
to Christ by faith and 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 they begin to grow and they begin to come with you to church and and you begin to see the fruit of faith in their lives and you're thankful and you praise God for it and then and then summer comes and uh, they go on summer vacation and back to the coast they go and and you hear of their trip afterwards and begin to realize that didn't go so well as they began to share with their family this newfound faith in Christ and the claims that he makes and what that means for their lives. And all, all of a sudden there's some coldness in the room and some, some distance around the dinner table and their, their particularly contentious brother begins to lob grenades at them, every objection imaginable against Christianity and the truth of Christ and his kingdom. What do you say to that couple? Maybe some of you, that's your experience right now. Maybe, maybe you come from a particularly religious family and you, the, you realize that they're going through the motions, but it's not what Jesus is talking about here. And you've come to see that and believe that and follow him and want to live that way. And yet, with your family, it's, it's, it's creating some discord and some difficulty. What do you do? What does Jesus give you? What does he say if this is your reality? How do you, how do you maintain this truth? How do you not doubt it but believe it and stay the course? That's what the disciples want to know. And what Jesus tells them is very simply that your first love must be for me. Your supreme commitment is for me. And for, for knowing who I am and believing that. that. That in knowing the truth, it will always, always confront falsehood. It will always confront indifference, which may be an even greater problem in our day and age. The apathy that seems to permeate every corner of our society. Ah, whatever. It's, who cares? I mean, you, you want to believe that? That's fine. It doesn't matter what you believe. I, it doesn't have any effect on me. That kind of apathy. Truth comes up against that all the time. And so there will be division even in the most intimate of relationships, those whom you love that are closest to you, it may come and it may be what you know even now. So Jesus is saying your commitment has to first be for me. But he doesn't leave us there. He actually begins to show us what it is in this passage of how we deal with this. And it's this, in his baptism, it says it created great distress until it was accomplished. Until it was finished. Until it was done. It's, it's really finished. It accomplished its purpose. And that is the hope for any and all who experience division because they claim Christ as their king and their sovereign. That, that the reality of the cross... And what Christ did on the cross, that he endured the cross for you, that that truth means everything for you and enables you to endure even division and all things 
for Christ and for him. It all comes down to the cross. It's the center of this passage. The fact that Christ endured the cross for you enables you to endure all things for him. Even division, even discord, even the heartache that comes with it. And as you stay the course then because of Christ, as you, as you believe kingdom truth, you may see God work mightily to bring peace and healing and redemption and restoration. See, kingdom life comes at a great cost. The very life of Christ, that was the price he paid giving his own life for you. And it calls for a great commitment. But Christ is the one who makes that commitment possible by his commitment to you because of his steadfast love and faithfulness to you, which is evidence for you in the cross. That's what you need to know as you engage your family in the very real everyday of life around these things that seem to divide. Never abandoning the truth, but recognizing Christ is sufficient for you in the midst of it, and he is everything. Those are the truths we must believe and not doubt. And as you believe, the kingdom of God will spread like wildfire across this land as we live for him as our king for the glory of Christ. Please pray with me. Father, we so desire to see your kingdom reign across this earth, not just to begin, but to come to consummation and completion in your perfect wisdom and timing. Father, we, we think of what it is to, to see the kingdom spread like yeast through dough, transforming and changing and bringing nourishment and strength and sustenance, might we know that very thing even this day as we turn to you by faith, as we trust you, as we walk with you and seek to live as your disciples for your glory, we pray. Amen.